Be back in John chapter number four. John chapter number four. And we've been here for uh, several weeks now. And what we've been looking at in John four is Jesus' interaction with uh, the woman at the well. And uh, as we've been looking at this, the first week we were in this, we saw that Jesus had left uh, Jerusalem and Judea and that region. And he had a uh, uh, blossoming ministry there, you could say, that things were going well, multitudes were following him, uh, a lot of people were showing interest, and so conventional wisdom says, stay there, stay amongst the crowds, amongst the multitudes, stay where people were religiously minded, where people were uh, interested, were following him, where there were great crowds to be had, but Jesus uh, went against conventional wisdom, he left that area to go up into Galilee, and it says that he must needs go through Samaria. And so in that, uh, in that message and in that passage, we found that uh, God's way is not always the way that we would do things. That oftentimes God's way is different. We know that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And so as he uh, went up through uh, Samaria and into uh, Galilee, he showed us that he was being directed by something different than what we usually are. See, whenever we are determining our direction, we often uh, rely on what's going to profit us or what's going to be popular, or we go with our normal prejudices, the things that we uh, know that we like or don't like. But instead, Jesus, whenever he decided his direction, he did it based upon what God's will was and what was going to be beneficial to his disciples and what was going to see people saved. And so for us, we learned in that, that whenever we're deciding our direction, rather than going about it the, the way that the world would or the way that the flesh would decide, we need to seek to please God, and we need to seek to do things that are going to build his kingdom, that are going to uh, lay up eternal riches, eternal treasures, rather than things that are temporary. Last week, what we were looking at is that Jesus had a conversation with this woman at the well. And in this conversation, he is skillfully leading her to himself. Uh, he gets there. She is broken. She is outcast. Uh, she is rejected even by her own people. And as Jesus sets down with her, he begins talking to her. He uh, ignores the hurt and the spite and the, uh, the skepticism and everything that's there. And instead, he sets down and has a talk with her and begins to uh, enlighten her, to guide her, to draw her to himself, and by the end of it, she goes to uh, to her people, and she says, "Come see a man that told me all that ever I did is not this the Christ." So at the end of that, she had uh, placed her faith in him. She said, "This is the Christ. This is the one that we've been looking for." And so our uh, things that we have seen from this conversation, we brought out seven things. The first one was was his motive was that of love. He loved God and he loved people. And so he came to her uh, doing the work of God and trying to lead her in the love of God, right? And so anyway, that was the motive. The message was the gospel, uh, that God was providing salvation to those who were broken. And so he brought that message to her. Uh, his uh, method was conversational. He met her where she was and led her to himself. Uh, we found that the mission field was the whole world, right? Even the ones that the disciples had overlooked, the ones that they didn't even think stood a chance that weren't even interested, right? And uh, Jesus says, uh, open your eyes because the harvest is right here. It's already uh, white unto harvest. It's ready for us to harvest. And you didn't even realize that there was a crop, right? We don't know what God's doing in the background. We don't know what God's doing in people's hearts and their minds. And we can look at the outside or we can look at different things about them and write them off, but the mission field is all around us. We found that there was many workers, that it wasn't just up to one or two people, but for all of us as Christians, all of us as the body of Christ, uh, we carry out uh, a witness, an example before people. We uh, sow seed of the gospel in many different places, and God uses that, cultivates that, and brings forth faith in the hearts of people. That even whenever Jesus came to this lady, someone had already been telling her about him when he got there. Someone had already prepared the soil, if you will, 
And that's the same thing that goes on today. It's not up to one church, one person, one pastor, one evangelist, one missionary, whatever. It's not up to one person, one group. It's up to all of us as believers to be a light and a witness in this world. There are many workers. We saw the multiplication of believers that uh, Jesus told her, and she went and told others. And that's the way that it works. Uh, we tell others what Jesus has done for us, and they tell others, and they tell others, and they tell others, and they tell others, right? And the multiplication of believers. And the last thing that we looked at in it was the manifold blessings. That whenever we live our lives for the Lord, whenever we engage in eternal work, things that count for eternity, that God is going to bless us both now and in eternity. He's going to reward us here and in eternity. There's so many blessings to living a life in God's will. And so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to continue in this passage, and we're going to find that Jesus, as he's coming here, he has a purpose in bringing his disciples here. He is uh, going to be stretching them a little bit here. And what we find in this passage that we're going to be looking at today is that he is confronting uh, some of the prejudices that they have. He is going to be confronting some of the problems they have because Jesus's plan and his purpose was far greater than just the Jews. It was far greater than just Jerusalem. And his disciples weren't ready for this yet. His disciples still had him pinned in a box. They still had their idea of how things were supposed to be going. They still had uh, their set fences or barriers or boundaries that they were trying to contain Jesus in. And Jesus brings them up to Samaria to take their little box that they're trying to fit him in and tears it to shreds. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So in John chapter number four, I want to read just a little bit here. I, really, the context is the entire chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter because you all go to sleep. Okay. But anyway, I'm not that compelling of a reader. But let's go ahead and look at uh, John chapter number four. I'll read the first little bit here. It says, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had, uh, had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were going away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Let's go ahead and uh, skip over to verse number 27. Verse 27 says, And upon this came the disciples, and they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city, and saith unto the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out. Then there. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, the disciples prayed him, saying, "Master, eat." But he said unto them, "I have meat to eat that you know not of." Therefore said his disciples one to another, "Hath any man brought ought, brought him ought to eat?" And so, in this passage here, let's go ahead. We'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to look into this, delve into this a little bit deeper. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the time that we have in your house. We thank you so much for your word and the way that it uh, instructs our minds and it uh, works and moves our hearts, Lord. And I just pray that you would help me today to preach your word. Help me to bring out these thoughts, Lord, that you have put upon my mind, Lord. And I just pray that you would be with each person here, that they would be uh, encouraged, Lord, that they would be uh, motivated, pushed a little bit. Uh, to draw near to you and to seek after you. And Lord, I pray if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would call upon you and they would trust you as their Savior before it's everlasting too late. We thank you and we do love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I said, we look at this passage here and Jesus 
is doing something that I find interesting. I find it a little bit humorous, okay? Because he has his 12 disciples following him, and he knows what is in every man. He knows uh, their thoughts. He knows their feelings, their emotions. He knows much more about them than they know about themselves. He also knows what he has planned for them. He knows what is going to be the future for them. He knows that they are going to be the ones that turn the world upside down with the gospel. Before he is ever given the great commission that they are to go into all of the world, he is going to have to stretch their point of view. He's going to have to stretch them beyond their prejudices and the things that they've got as they are stuck in their uh, Jewish mindset, as they see themselves as a special people, as they have all of these fears and these hatreds for other things and other people. And Jesus has to start working in them to purge out these prejudices. And he does that by bringing them up to Samaria. And as we've went through this uh, passage over the past couple of weeks, we've touched on a lot of these things. But we know that the disciples and that the Jews did not like the Samaritans. And quite frankly, I would say the feelings were mutual. I don't think the Samaritans cared much for the Jews. If someone thought that you were unclean, if they thought that you were unholy and unfit, would you like them? If they tried to avoid you, if they tried, if they would walk miles to get around you so that they didn't have to share the same road or the same town with you, would you like them? You wouldn't like them. And so the Jews did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews. And so Jesus is taking his Jewish disciples up into the middle of Samaria. And so I can imagine how uncomfortable that would make them. Have you ever watched someone be put in an uncomfortable situation and just watched them squirm? Have you ever done that to someone just for fun? Put them in an uncomfortable situation just for fun? I think Jesus was doing that here. It wasn't just for fun, but it was to teach them something. And so he brings them up to Samaria. He brings them right into the middle of this people group that they weren't particularly fond of. And after he gets them there, he sends them out to buy food. So the disciples' mindset, their point of view as they're coming into Samaria is, okay, this is the shortest route. We walk quickly. We don't talk to anybody. We keep our eyes straight forward. We get to the other side. We put Samaria behind us, and we are done. It's like a trip to the dentist. You try to make it as fast and painless as possible. And that was their perspective on going through Samaria. And so they get there. It's the middle of the day. It's hot. They're tired. And Jesus sits down on the well. And they're like, wait a second. This is a public place, Jesus. This is near to the town. People might see us. We might have to interact with someone. Oh, since you said something about that, why don't you go into town? I'm getting a little bit hungry. Why don't you go into town and buy some food? Now, remember, they thought that just the land, just the ground that they were stepping on was unclean because it had been polluted by the Samaritans. And now they're going to go into their shops and buy the food that they have handled and ingest it into their little Jewish bodies. And so now they have to interact with the Samaritans. And that would have killed them. And if that wasn't bad enough, whenever they come back to Jesus, Jesus is speaking with one of the Samaritans, not just any Samaritan, a woman of Samaria, and one that doesn't have a good reputation. And they're saying, Jesus, what are you doing? You're crossing all of these boundaries. You're, you're breaking all of these barriers. that we. What are you doing, Jesus? And they bought the food. Now he doesn't want to eat the food. The people come out, and now there's multitudes of the Samaritans that are surrounding them. And if we read onward, they stay in that land for two days. So that means that they spent the night there. It means that they ate several meals there. They gathered around the tables with the Samaritans. They stayed more than likely in their houses and slept in their beds. Maybe they were frosty. Maybe. Like, we're not eating while we're here. Everything's unclean. Yes, you have a bed available, but this is a nice cozy place on the footpath. Right? And I can't help but imagine that Jesus probably cracked a smile or two through this. 
Because although the disciples had their prejudices, Jesus didn't. And so what he was doing here is he was purging them of these prejudices. And we're going to find three different areas in which he attacks their prejudices, their preconceived notions here. And oftentimes, whatever we think of prejudices, we think of racism. We think of things along the lines of racial prejudices, don't we? Because that's very much alive and well in the world which we live in. But we have all sorts of prejudices because a prejudice is something that we have predecided we don't like. You know, there is a lot of foods that my kids are prejudiced against. Probably not as many as most kids have, but they have decided before they ever even tried it, they don't like it. They have it determined in their mind ahead of time. That is a prejudice. Okay. If you are uh, called in to be on a jury and whenever you come to that jury and you have knowledge of the case ahead of time and you look at the defendant and you think that they are already guilty and you have already decided before you heard the case, you have decided that you that they are guilty, then they're going to rule that you are prejudiced in that case and you'll be dismissed from the jury, right? That's what a prejudice is, that you already have determined, you have already pre-decided ahead of time. And there are so many things in our lives and in our minds that we have decided ahead of time that are hindrances to the work of God in this world and in our lives. There are so many things that we have pre-decided. There are so many prejudices that we have, uh, boxes that we have built around to say, God, I will do anything but that. I'll go anywhere but there. And so we have these prejudices, and God seeks to purge us of those prejudices. He doesn't have these barriers that we have built up. These are our own constructs. These are our own things that we have brought out. They are not of God. They are of us. And we have to realize that these hang-ups that we have are not his hang-ups. But whenever we look at these things, these are barriers to the gospel. These are barriers to the work that we have for Christ. These are barriers to people getting saved and coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so whenever we look at it in that way, we can see that these are things that should not be there. These are barriers that need to be gotten rid of, but they are things that nonetheless are there. They need to be dealt with, right? And in this passage, we're finding Jesus dealing with them. He is causing them to face their prejudices, face their fears, and he is deconstructing, if you will, all of these things. And I believe that's what we need to do in our lives as well. And so I want to look at these three different uh, prejudices that Jesus is purging from his disciples. And the first one we've already uh, already alluded to quite a bit is the prejudice against ethnicity. Okay, And I've intentionally called it ethnicity and not race because I believe there is one race, the human race. And there are many different ethnicities. There's many different uh, nationalities. There's many different uh, languages and countries and people groups. But there is one race, and that's the human race. But there is a common prejudice. It doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what your background is. There will be ethnic prejudices that you have. There are going to be certain groups of people that you don't like. Now, that sounds bad coming from a Christian, from a pastor, right? The area that I come from is extremely prejudiced. Having to do with ethnicity, because the area that I come from, there is one ethnicity. We are not a diverse group. And most people from where I'm from look like me, sound like me, speak like me, believe similar to what I believe. And a lot of the people that are there are extremely prejudiced. They don't like people who don't look like them, believe like them, talk like them. And so there is a lot of prejudice that is there. But it's not just in that area. It's everywhere. It doesn't matter what ethnicity, what uh, nationality that you are. There are going to be certain things that you're prejudiced against. It can be because of historical things. It can be because of real uh, struggles that have happened, wars and, and things that have been fought causes us to dislike certain groups of people. There can be hostilities and aggression. There can be uh, things that uh, people have done in previous generations and histories and things that come into those prejudices. And we can try to justify them. We can try to say that I don't like that group because of this. But here's what we're doing. We are identifying people by a label or by a group or by a category. 
And, and all of these prejudices that we're going to be uh, purging here, that we're going to be talking about today, it, it comes down to this same thing of putting people into a category, putting people into a label or into a group, because it is a lot easier to justify hating a group or disliking a group than a specific person. We can marginalize a group, but it's harder to marginalize an individual. But whenever Jesus came into Samaria, he didn't see this woman as a Samaritan. He saw her as a person. Not only did he see her as a person, he saw her as a person who is made in the image and likeness of God. And so the disciples could say, that is a Samaritan. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They have done all of these things. They have perverted our bloodline. They have intermarried with the Jews. They have taken our religion and they have perverted it. They have all these customs that we don't like and that we disagree with. And so we don't like the Samaritans because they're weird, because they're different, because they're offensive. But Jesus looked at this woman and said, she is a person. She is an individual. She is a human being. She is someone for whom he came to die. And so if we take this and we look at it from a biblical perspective, the Bible says in Acts chapter number 17, uh, this is where uh, Paul is standing on Mars Hill and he is preaching the message. Uh, we often talk about the, the, the message of the unknown God. He looked around, saw all the idols. He saw one that was erected to the unknown God, and he began to preach about who that unknown God was. And he started preaching about God, started preaching about Jesus. And he says that, yes, there is one God who made of one blood all nations. And he says it doesn't matter who we are, if we're Jew or Greek. Uh, it doesn't matter what nationality that we are, what ethnicity we are. We are all of one blood, and that Jesus Christ came to save all. If we begin hating on one group of people, if we hate one na na uh, nationality or ethnicity or dislike, because we don't like to say hate, do we? If we dislike them, then it's going to limit our witness to them. And what witness we do have is going to be negative, isn't it? And so he is made of one blood all nations. We find in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's not talking just about uh, Jews, not talking about uh, any particular uh, race or ethnicity or whatever you want to call it, not talking about Americans or Europeans or Africans or Asians. Or It's the entire world. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3, 16, that we often quote, he, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that uh, none should perish, but all should come. Uh, I'm, I'm mixing verses, ain't I? But anyway, he so loved the whole world. He wanted all to be saved. It doesn't matter where they come from, what language they speak, what their background is, what their politics is. But he loved the whole world. We find that, as I've already mentioned, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. doesn't matter what we look like or what we talk like. We are still image bearers of God. And to hate anyone, to put down anyone, is to put down, to hate someone who is the image of God. We find that he chose the Jews to be a witness to the world. They didn't uh, take too kindly to their their job that they had, but the reason why God chose Abraham and Abraham's family in the very beginning was that they could make known to the whole world the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because at the time of Abraham, the knowledge of God had diminished to the place. Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. The knowledge of God was no longer retained within them, and so he revealed himself to Abraham so that Abraham and his descendants could reveal to the world their God. Not only that, but that God could bring about Jesus Christ through that lineage to die for the entire world. God's plan has always been worldwide. 
we find that whenever Jesus was telling the people, they came to him and they asked him a question. They said, what is the greatest commandment? Y'all remember that? What is the greatest commandment? And he responded, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second one is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the men from the crowd, willing to justify himself, says, who is my neighbor? If I'm, only, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, I want you to specify. Tell me who my neighbor is so I know who I can love and who I have to hate. And so Jesus proceeds to tell a story. And he tells a story that we know as the Good Samaritan. And he says that there was a man going down to Jericho. He fell among thieves and robbers who beat him, who robbed him, who left him naked and about dead on the side of the road. And the first one that came through was a Jew. And we have a priest that came through and a Levite that came through. And both of them wanted nothing to do with him. And then came through a Samaritan. And the Samaritan got off of his animal used his own things, cleaned him up, doctored his wounds, set him on his own animal, took him to the inn, nursed him a little bit back to health, and then paid for his keeping and for his care and went on his way with no expectation of repayment, no return whatsoever, and continued onward. Jesus made the Samaritan the hero in a story he was telling to the Jews. And then he asked them, he forced them to acknowledge. He says, who in this story I just told was the neighbor? And they said, the Samaritan, the one who cared. And so they had to say, after Jesus says, love your neighbor, that the Samaritan was the neighbor, and therefore the Jews had to love the Samaritans. That would have been an interesting time in their heads, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so the Samaritan was the hero in the story, but he was also making it clear that those that they had put out of the bounds of God's love and favor were the very ones that God expected them to show love to. Whenever we talk about the Great Commission, whenever Jesus says to go into all the world, whenever he says to preach the gospel to the in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, Oftentimes in our minds, what we have going on is like concentric circles. We see this as Jerusalem as the middle. This is where I live. This is my hometown. Okay. And then we have uh, Judea. That would be like my county. Okay. And then we have uh, going outward, 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 just like it's expanding. Right. That's not how the Jews saw it because Yes, Jerusalem is right around my hometown. This is where I'm at. This is where the Jewish people is. Uh, Jerusalem and Judea, that, that's our region. Samaria, those are our enemy. Those are the people I don't like. Those are the ones that I see as unclean and I try to avoid. And Jesus says, yes, them too. And the uttermost parts of the earth, you know who those are? Those are Gentiles. It's not just expanding our circle bigger and bigger. It's saying, I want you to be witnesses to all people. What about the Samaritans? Yes, them too. The Gentiles? Yes, them too. Right? And so Jesus is purging them of this prejudice against ethnicity. The second thing that we find in this is that we are prejudice of lifestyle. We're prejudice of lifestyle. Because we see this woman here. She is a sinner, right? She has been married five times. The insinuation is that she had been unfaithful, and that is why she was put away and married again and put away and married again, put away and married again. And the man that she is now with is not her husband. We read this, and we know that the time that she was coming out to draw water, it seems, and we've often implied this, that she was coming out at this time to avoid the townspeople because she had a poor reputation with the townspeople. She didn't want to go out with the rest of the women to draw water because the rest of the women knew that she had stole several women's men. Right? And so she was a sinner. She was unclean. But yet Jesus came to her, a Samaritan, of an unclean lifestyle, 
and sat down and talked with her and shared the gospel with her. And the disciples were incredulous enough that Jesus was talking with a Samaritan. And then the fact that he was talking with a woman, that was not culturally acceptable because her, for a man to be talking to a woman that weren't married to each other out alone in a public place, whatever, that would be seen as scandalous, right? But then to find out her reputation, what kind of woman it was that he was speaking with. How many times was it that the Pharisees and different ones were questioning Jesus because they said, if he really was the Messiah, if he really was the Christ, would he be talking to such a person as that? Does he not know what kind of woman he's talking to? And so with this woman, we find that Jesus was able to overlook her lifestyle, overlook her sinfulness, and was still able to treat her like a human being, that he was still able to look on her with love and with compassion and to have a conversation with her as a person and to be able to show enough care and concern to break down the walls that she had built up that she would let him in. That's huge. And so for us, we have so many different groups, so many different labels that we put on people, so many people who are off limits or out of bounds, so many people that we don't want to associate with that we don't think would ever be interested and we wouldn't be interested in them because of the life that they live. As far as Christians, we like to uh, keep our associations above the board, right? And we have talked about we, we need to be careful about the influences that we have in our lives, but we are to be salt and light in this world. We have to be in this world to be a witness to the people in this world. Now, I'm not telling you to go down inside of the pub and drink at the bar, okay? But I am saying that whenever we start labeling people and being prejudiced against people because of the lifestyle that they live, we are setting up barriers between them and Jesus. We are making them people whom we can't reach. We are treating them in a way that is unloving, uncaring, and unacceptable. Because the Lord has told us that we are to be as he was, that we are to be his hands and his mouth and his feet. We are the body of Christ in this world. And so as he went about doing good, as he had love and compassion on people, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Bible tells us, and of some having compassion, making a difference. And so whenever we start seeing the sinful condition of some people's lives, we alienate them, we stay our distance from them, we treat them as if they're lepers, and we say unclean, rather than realizing that we ourselves have our own sin, our own guilt, our own shamefulness, and that none of us are worthy of the salvation that he has offered us. We start categorizing, and somehow we're less of sinners than what they were, and we are more deserving of Christ's love than what they are, and so for us, we see ourselves as self-righteous, as holier than thou. And so we push them away from the God that desires to save them. We can see the woman caught in adultery in John chapter number eight. We'll eventually get over there. But in John chapter eight, it says that they bring a woman out, they throw her down at Jesus' feet and say, we caught this woman in adultery in the very act. And Moses in the law says that such should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus ignored them. He stooped down on the ground and began writing. We have no idea what he wrote. Preachers have a lot of fun speculating. We have no idea what he wrote on the ground, but whatever it was, it was convicting enough that the people standing around began to drop their stones. Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they began one by one dropping their stones and walking away. And then Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Right? Whenever I talk about not being prejudiced against people because of their sin, it doesn't mean to overlook their sin. It doesn't mean to be soft on it. It doesn't mean to excuse it. It doesn't mean that we pretend that it's not sinful. Because even as Jesus was talking to this woman at the well, he does bring up her sin. But he doesn't excoriate her for it. He doesn't condemn her for it. He doesn't alienate her for it. He says, go and get your husband. 
She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, and that you said truly. You've had five husbands, and he that you have now is not your husband. Right? He didn't stray away from that. He still confronted the fact that she had sin in her life, but he didn't hate her for it. He didn't ridicule her for that. He was able to bring that out in such a way. See, this is something I would love that if we could actually see and hear the way that Jesus spoke to this woman, because the way that he spoke and the way that he uh, treated her conveyed to her that he truly cared about her. You realize that whenever we love people, when we truly care about people, that we can broach uncomfortable subjects, that we can talk about things that are uncomfortable without hurting them, without alienating them, without causing fight and anger with them. And here's the thing. If we cannot talk to someone, the Bible tells us, speak the truth in love, right? It doesn't tell us to lie to people. It doesn't tell us to comfort them with lies. It doesn't tell us to gloss over their sin. But if we are going to speak the truth, it better be in love. But a lot of people have the idea that because it's true that I can speak it in whatever manner I want to. And if you cannot speak the truth in love, keep your mouth shut. Is that simple enough? Whenever we're trying to be a witness for God, whenever we are trying to live out this Christian life, whenever we are trying to be Jesus to a broken and sinful and hurting world, if we don't have compassion, if we don't have love, if we don't have care, we have no business speaking the truth. Whenever the, the religious group came and they cast that woman caught in, the, the, in adultery down at Jesus' feet, they spoke the truth. Moses and the law did say that such should be stoned. But they came seething with hatred and wrath and malice and vitriol against that woman, thinking that they themselves were righteous and that she was a sinner. They saw themselves as holy and her as less than human. And so unless we can speak the truth in love, we're better off not to speak at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul gives us a list of the, the works of the flesh. And it talks about adultery and fornication and lasciviousness and uncleanness and all of these different things. Abominations and filth and sin. And he says, such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he turns it and he says, and such were some of you. But you are cleansed, but you are washed. How? By the blood of Jesus. And so it is a reminder to these people that, yes, these sinful and these wicked people that we see, they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God unless they are washed by the blood of Jesus. That you yourself were sinful and that you were guilty just the same as they were, and you would be on your way to a devil's hell the same as they are if it was not for Jesus. Such were some of you, and the only reason why you're not anymore is because of him. That changes our perspective on the people around us, on the sinfulness, on the wickedness. Whenever we start categorizing people, whenever we start uh, just marking people off as if they are unworthy or as if they are worse than others, as if they are unlovable and unreachable, we've done messed up. Some of the things that we look at today as Christians as abominations and unthinkable would have been the equivalent to what we're seeing in this passage here where Jesus sits down beside of her and says, you are broken. Your life has been wrecked and been destroyed by sin. And you are not identified by your sin. You're not identified by these things that the world, the category that they put you in, you are a human being whose life is wrecked by sin and you need a Savior, you need salvation, just the same as every other person. See, if we would realize that people are not the enemy, but Satan and sin is, it would change things a lot. Whenever we see people that are in this condition, and we realize that their lives have been wrecked, that they have been broken, that they have been destroyed, they may not realize it. 
But the sinfulness of mankind has seeped into their world and has crushed it and has bruised them and is chewing them up and spitting them out and trying to usher them into a devil's hell. We're going to have a different attitude toward those people. There's so many different places I could go whenever we think about the lifestyles that we become prejudiced against. We know that Saul of Tarsus, what kind of lifestyle did he have before Jesus saved him? Saul, who became Paul. He murdered Christians. Matthew was a publican. That doesn't mean that he ran a pub. That means that he was a tax collector. He was a thief, a cheat, a liar, a swindler, right? He was a traitor of young people. And Jesus chose him to be a disciple. We see that there was a Pharisee and a publican that went in praying in the temple and the Pharisee stood up. He was the religious elite. He said, he, he stood up and he bragged to God about what a great person he was. Started telling about all the good deeds he did and how special he was. And the publican came in, would not so much as lift up his eyes and he smote upon his breast and said, God be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus asked the people, he said, which of them went home justified. It was the publican, not the Pharisee. And I fear that too often for us as Christians that we more closely resemble that Pharisee than we do that publican. That we see ourselves as righteous and as holy. That publican, as he stood there, he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. Even whenever Jesus was going about his ministry, the Pharisees and the scribes, they began to murmur about him and says that he eats with publicans and sinners. Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus looks at them in their self-righteousness and their pride, and he says, they that are whole don't need a physician, but they who are sick. He said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Was he saying that the Pharisees were whole? Was he saying that they were righteous? No, just in their own eyes. A doctor can't cure someone who don't know they're sick. But you know what? That woman knew she was a sinner. Those Pharisees, or those, you know, those publicans and sinners, they knew their condition. Back whenever I, I used to preach in the jails all the time, I loved preaching in the jails because you didn't have to tell those people they screwed up. They knew it. They've been caught. They're not going to come to you and say, I'm a good person. Look at me. I'm just a saint. I've never done anything wrong in my life. Well, what are you doing here? Well, it's a misunderstanding. No, they knew they were sinners. The last thing that we want to look at here, whenever we talk about our prejudices that we have that need to be tore down, that need to be purged, ethnicity, lifestyle, religion. Because her being a Samaritan meant that she had a different religion from the Jews. The Samaritan religion had taken the religion of the Jews and of the Gentiles, merged them together, and they had made their own variation of Judaism. And so the Jews especially hated the Samaritans because they had uh, taken the Jewish religion and they had, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They had perverted it in such a way. And so they said it's a false religion. It is uh, something that is so far out, so unclean. And so we hate the Samaritans because they serve a false god, because they have desecrated our religion. They're not serving the same god as what we do. And so we don't like the Samaritans. And we find that in our day and time today that we can look at other religions other groups and marginalize them. The Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Catholics, the Protestants, this group and that group and this group and that group. And we lump them all together under one title, under one label. We marginalize them and we see them as being unclean. We've made a decision ahead of time. We have a prejudice against them, and it causes us to be ineffective in showing them the love of Christ, in showing them any kind of decency, in having a normal relationship or conversation with them, 
because we have set them at odds. We are one group and they are another. Rather than we are one person and they are another person. We are one soul that Jesus saved and they are a soul that Jesus wants to save. There's a huge difference there. Through the Bible, we can find different places where God really didn't care anything for religion. All throughout Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees had their religion, the Jews had their religion, that they had added to the laws of God, that they had put so much on what God had given them that they had made their own religion up out of it. And Jesus went about just serving God and not paying much attention to their religion, right? Whenever he called Abraham, you realize that Abraham wasn't over there just being a good Christian in Ur of the Chaldee. He was a pagan whenever God called him. He came from a family that were uh, worshipers of the moon God. And God revealed himself to Abraham and said, follow me. I'm going to take you to a place. I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm going to show you who I am. And of your seed, the whole earth is going to be blessed. You realize that all this started with him revealing himself to a pagan? He didn't care about Abraham's background. He said, it's not about where you're from. It's what I want to do with you. So where I want to take you to. It's not what you've done, but what I'm going to do. And whenever he sent out the disciples, he sent them out to the whole world, to every region, to every religion, not to go out and bash them and tell them how wrong they are, not to go out and engage in religious debates and tell them how uh, they've got this wrong and that wrong. And all. Yes, whenever Jesus talked to this woman at the well, he says, you worship, you know not what. We know who we worship because salvation is of the Jews. But the day's coming when those who worship him will not worship him in this mountain or in Jerusalem. But those who are going to worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth because God seeks such to worship him. What's he telling them? What's he telling this woman? He says it's so much more than religion. It's not about the rituals that we do. It's not about jumping through these hoops. It's about serving the living God. It's about what is true and absolute truth. It is about seeking to serve the God who is. And so in our lives, we can put people in our categories, in our boxes. They're this ethnicity. I don't like them. They committed these sins. I want to stay away from them. They're a different religion. They're not going to listen to me anyway. And in all these ways, we are building barriers between us and the ones that Christ came to save. We're building barriers between us and our mission field. We are making excuses for us not to love those that Christ loved. And in all of this, we are limiting the work that God wants to do in us and through us. And so what God has told us to do and what we looked at there a little while ago, he said the greatest commandment was to love God. And the second one was to love your neighbor as yourself. If we would see people as people rather than labels or groups or whatever prejudices that we have, if we would see them as people, show them the love of God, regardless of where they are, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe, show them the love of God and treat them with dignity and human kindness and be Jesus to them. Who knows what God can do? Now, we might think, well, that sounds a little bit like, join hands and sing kumbaya and all these kind of things. That's not what I'm saying. We're not talking about ecumenicalism, just love everybody, love God. Love. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying to see every person as a person. See every person as a soul who God wants to save. As someone who is in God's image and likeness. Someone who, like us, is broken and needs healing. And it's going to change the way that we look at people. It's going to change the way that we treat people. It doesn't mean that we overlook sin. It doesn't mean that we just let everything go. 
doesn't mean that we become a doormat. It doesn't mean that we act stupid. I'm not saying that you go out and you let the the newly released convict take up a boat in your extra bedroom. That's not what I'm saying. There is some room for com- common sense here. That's not what love means. But we treat them as human beings, regardless of their past, regardless of their present, regardless of their religion, regardless of their ethnicity, any of these things. And we treat them with love, kindness, human dignity. Because guess what? That's what Jesus did. You know the ones that Jesus didn't have a whole lot of patience with? The ones that he didn't spend a whole lot of time on? On the arrogant, on the proud, on the self-righteous? You don't find him going out and seeking them out. I must needs go by the temple because there is an arrogant priest there that I want to get in a religious debate with. No, I must needs go through Samaria because there's a broken woman there that needs someone to love her. It's a big difference there. So this is my encouragement today. Search your heart. All of us have prejudices. Doesn't mean that we can just decide in our own minds we're going to quit with those from now on. Some of those are strongholds it's hard to tear down. But we need to realize that they are there and we need to seek God to help us to love people as he loves people. We need to seek for God to help us to overcome and purge the prejudices out of us so that we can truly love people as he does. And that is something that we can pray. That's something that we can seek and say, God, I realize there is this group. There is this person. There is this area that I have a problem with. God, change my heart toward them. And so that is my challenge for us today. Be honest with ourselves and seek to love people like Christ loves people, like he loves us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. And we do thank you for uh, this example in Scripture. Lord, it goes so much against so much of the religion that we see today, even so much of so-called Christianity today. And Lord, we feel self-righteous. We we think that it's righteous indignation whenever we uh, spew hatred and things toward these people and these groups, Lord. But Lord, how it must hurt your heart, Lord, whenever you come to, to die for them and we push them away from you. We build barriers and walls between them and you by our actions and by our attitudes. Help us, Lord, to align with you and align with your word. Help us to to truly be uh, salt and light in this world. And Lord, help us to, to purge these prejudices, to break down these barriers, and to be what you would have us to be. Lord, we do love you and we praise you. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.